This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by This Place, 150 Years Retold, by Highwater Press, also known as Portage and Main Press, www.highwaterpress.com. Check it out today. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Uh, I'm here with my very special guest, uh, who is a writer, comics maker, professor, journalist, and father, Negan Sinclair. Um, our regular co-host, Dan Vadaboncur, is, I believe, two or three-timing us with another podcast today, which is why he cannot be here. Uh, and Justin... Uh, middle name Danger Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork, uh, had a catastrophic morning failure. So he is also late for the podcast. He may show up at the end, but I sincerely doubt it. So again, it's just going to be you and I sharing deep truths about making things. I feel like I was set up because I, you know, I, I contacted you and I, I said, hey, congrats, we won this award. And you're like, podcast. And I was like, Okay, and then next thing you know, I'm the only, I'm not, I'm, I'm the co-host, the guest, the featured commentator, the uh, muse, all at the same time. Is it the first time in your life that you have been unfairly thrust into the limelight? Uh, you know what? This this reminds me of a time that I was. I do a lot of speaking, right? And I do a lot of speaking across on across our city, across Canada, um, on different issues, particularly involving Indigenous peoples, uh, activism, protests, reconciliation, that kind of thing. Anyways, so there is a church in Winnipeg that shall remain nameless, and but they're a bit of a social activist, left wingy kind of church, and they said, "Hey, can you come and speak to the congregation?" And I get invited all the time to come speak to them to congregations and so on. I do Q&As and that kind of thing. And most people want to talk about treaty and they want to talk about uh, Show Lake 40 or water in Winnipeg. Or I'm interrupting. Oh, sure. You yeah, get yeah. asked often to talk at churches? All the time. Yeah, all the time. I've probably spoken wow. at probably cool. maybe 50 to 60% of all the churches in Winnipeg. Anyways, so uh, so anyways, this one church... Come on. No, it's true. It's true. They, you know, they're very interested in Indigenous people. So... Um, Good, bad, great, ugly. Some of them are really difficult to speak to and some of them are, are quite fun. But this one, I get invited and I show up and I'm sitting in the pews and the, 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 the choir comes up and starts singing. And they're like, uh, and basically this guy just comes out of the audience, comes to the front and says, and for your sermon today, here is Dr. Negon Sinclair. And I was like, what? There was, the minister took the week off. I was the minister. And like they booked me, and they, they you know, they they, you. there was no money involved. There was just like, hey, can you drop by the church and answer a few questions? Next thing you know, I was I had to give a one-hour sermon on. I ended up just tell you know just talking about uh, indigenous and non-indigenous relationships in the city. But like you know, I don't know anything about Jesus, and I don't know anything about the Bible, and you know, I just know I, I reverted back to my grade seven uh, Sunday school. And just try to think of whatever I could talk about. And anyways, it was a very weird moment. That, this reminds me of that, where I was like, th th you know, I was expecting to talk to Justin and Dan and you. And then suddenly now I'm the, I'm it. It's just me, really. It's just me. And I'll do my best to carry carry the conversation. I'm just a shadow of my former self this last month. So uh, whatever's left of me is here for you again. Oh, well. That's it. Well, the whole reason this all got started is because we have very big news with uh, our book that we're in together called This Place, which is the first graphic novel in history in Manitoba to win the book of the year and also the book of a year by a Manitoba publisher. Um, and so it's a collection anthology by Indigenous writers called This Place. And you were an illustrator and I was a uh, writer slash storyteller on it. Yeah. And it's uh, one of those projects where um, before, well, they were still putting it together, still pitching it. Uh, Catherine came to me and said, I'd like to include your name in a project that's so big, I don't know if it'll be able to happen. Um, would you be interested in it? This is sort of the scope. And she told me the sort of the scope of it. And I said, like, wow, that's amazing. I hope that comes together. I would love to be a part of it. And then 
it was probably four or five months later where I was sure now that it wasn't happening, that it was, yes, hey, do you want to come and be a part of this project? Um, and then ever since then, this place has just continues to grow and get bigger and go farther and get more readers and have more discourse. And it's one of those things where uh, if I had known what a big deal a book would have been beforehand, I might have actually, I was having this talk with somebody else, might have declined included well, um, I mean, in favor of a uh, an actual Indigenous illustrator. Well, I mean, like, it's it was nominated for the number like i don't know i'm not i'm not as versed on the comic book award world like i'm sure you are but it was nominated for a doug wright award which is the isn't that like the number one comic book awards in the country it's a canadian yeah it's sort of like the canadian eisners for the dear listener who is from america saying i don't know about the doug wright award it's the canadian eisners essentially um but different than um maybe different than the U S comics market is that we're not dominated by Marvel and DC. So, so many of the projects that end up nominated for the Doug Wright award are much more personal and much more, um, risky and less corporate owned, you know, a uh, really stellar run of silver surfer can win an Eisner award and be recognized as being an excellent comic book storytelling. But in the end, um, a giant corporation owns that story, no matter what. Um, what I like about the Doug Wright Awards is so many of them are small press or independent presses, um, you know, right up there beside, you know, your Harper Collins or your uh, tour or whatever. So, well, I mean, the, um, it was the book was intentionally ambitious and I didn't even get the, hey, did you want to be part of this before they wrote the grant? I mean, I've been working with Portage and Main Press slash Highwater Press. Highwater Press is the trade imprint of Portage and Main Press, which does mostly textbooks. And uh, and it's owned by um, Catherine Gerbassi and uh, formerly Annalie Greenberg. And uh, anyways, gone through, they've gone from being a small publisher to barely being a mid-range publisher now. And one of the arguably one of the most important publishers of Indigenous literature in Canada, they're regularly producing. Whereas most publishing houses will produce one or two books a year, they're producing two to three, maybe sometimes four. And uh, the the project was, let's take 10 Indigenous stories uh, about Canada's 150 and uh, let's retell Canada. Let's tell 150 years from Indigenous points of view and let's invite people to illustrate it. And what what I suggested was... Uh, let's do it in such a way that we have sort of blocks of 15 years a piece. And um, I got the years 1990 through 2005. And on your story... Was that your suggestion? I didn't know that how that all shook out. That's cool. Uh, well, in the initial phases, uh, I was asked, like, let's do a project. And I said, okay, well, you know what we should do? We should tell Indigenous perspectives of Canada 150. And then they said, that's a great idea. And then somehow things formulated into doing a graphic novel. I didn't have a hand in that. But then when we eventually had it, we said, how are we going to break all this down? I said, give everybody 15 years. And they have to retell those 15 years. And it could be like a moment or a series of moments in the case of my story. So I have the, I think probably the most interesting time period of those 150 years in terms of Indigenous activism anyways, because you got 1990, which is Oka, which is the standoff at Oka and also Elijah Harper's No to Meech Lake. And then book ended with the Kelowna Accord in 2005. You know, two very interesting moments in Canadian history where Indigenous peoples are you know, taking up arms against the Canadian state on the invasion of their lands on one side. And then the other side, the most uh, active involvement and engagement of Indigenous political leaders with Canadian government in history. Those two, you know, one is an absolute refusal and the other one is an engagement. Now, both of those things have their challenges, but I I did a love story. Um, which kind of told a story about myself. Um, it told a story about a young man who comes into understanding what Indigenous peoples experience during that time period and then kind of becomes an activist himself. And then also at the same point kind of meets somebody who uh, he cares deeply about and then they fall in love and have a family. And uh, that part's not true. But the other part about uh, me growing up in that activism time is the true part. So it's kind of a uh, it's kind of an autobiographical story, 50 percent true, 50 percent fiction. Like most good stories, uh, it's a right in the middle. It's only a story. It's not real. It's only a story. 
What years did you have? Um, we were, oh, I'm trying to think now. It was just, I always place it around because it's right in the wartime. So I'm not sure what the exact span of the 15 years is, uh, but it lands right it, over the course of World War II. Um, World War One, World War Two, and looking at um, um, the inner perspective of uh, well, you know, it's funny. It's I, I don't even want I don't want to put words into the mouths of the storytellers. The Sean and Rachel told this story that is a uh, young girl being shown that there are two ways to look at the world: the literal and the uh, mythic, but the mythic as literal at the same time. And it's it's hard to, uh, for a dear reader to know what I mean, unless you look at how the story was illustrated, which is uh, a problem I had when I was asked, I kept asking Sean and Rachel, which parts of this story are literal and which parts of this story are metaphorical. And they said, well, that's a European way of thinking about it. You have to look at it at the same time. Both things are true at the same time. And that's what we're trying to illustrate, is that if you accept that the metaphor and the literal can share the same space, then on one level, it's a story of a um, of what the what is at risk spiritually for the Inuk people in their war against colonialism versus what is practically and actually at work and at risk. And those kinds of things really, uh, actually it messed me up a little bit as a storyteller for a while. That was a really hard one to get right. Um, well, I mean, I have the book right here. I'm looking through it. You have, okay. you, you, you have the year 1930 to 1945, which is bookended by uh, two really important issues for Inuit people, because uh, the arrival of the war for Indigenous peoples generally was uh, an interesting moment because Indigenous peoples when they entered into the war, had to give up being indigenous, or they had to give up their status as First Nation citizens. The Inuit weren't quite in that situation because Inuit are not First Nations, but um, most First Nations, if you gave up the war, you weren't just giving up, um, leaving, like when you left your community, you had to leave forever to go fight in the war. And so uh, that particular time period, 1930, 1945, is a, is a time of, of profound kind of adventure in one level, because you're an indigenous person, you know, on a reserve and suddenly you're going overseas, never mind it's for a war, but you're going these new experiences and so on. But you're also bringing that world home. And part of bringing that world home is you refuse to go home. And so uh, it's a kind of an interesting moment for Indigenous peoples in that history. And so your story is interesting because it talks about the impacts of the war in this far off land, off in Germany, in France and Europe, and how it comes back to the Inuit, even though people aren't there. And um, and the war obviously doesn't come to northern uh, what we now know as Canada to the Inuit territory, but it still it finds its way into the stories, to the life, to the um, relationships within Inuit communities. And so it's yeah, it's a really interesting story. And that kind of thing happens throughout the whole book, eh? Well, and so uh, I got this one of the pages of the script as Sean and Rachel they describe. Uh, what is essentially a, a ceremony where um, Inuit shaman are fighting on a spiritual plane the evil forces of Nazi, Nazi mystics. And I was like, okay, well, this is a really wild kind of metaphorical idea. I like that. It'll be fun to illustrate. Um, but I asked them in a call that we had uh, by satellite phone, like, how much of this, how real is this? Like, is this a metaphor? Is this literal? And they said, no, that this, this really happened. This is not the weird part. This is not the part we made up. We made up all kinds of other fun things in this story, but not this part. This is a real event that occurred. And what's interesting about the people who are, at least to me, looking at historical accounts and then illustrating that historical account and then writing and reading about this historical accounts that all of this stuff that I was told as a young person about what was really at stake in World War II, learning in my high school class, and who was really affected, 
and who was paying attention and why they were paying attention suddenly becomes so much more broad, so much more complicated and so much more heavily entwined with all these other people in a way that for me, it was literally a paradigm shift of like, oh shit, right? The, the white perspective of, or I guess really the European perspective of the war, the evil that Nazism represented, the evil of fascism. Um, how can you, as a member of a Northern community that is essentially being exploited by a colonial group, buy into that and then also think, yeah, we should fight those guys. Like this whole complicated thing. And what's great about this book is it doesn't, I don't think me personally as a teacher, what I like about it is it doesn't try to answer all those questions. It doesn't say here's the right way or here's how it really was or here's whatever. It just says, here's a story set in that time period. And most of them are emotionally driven. So you can connect to those characters like yours right is really there's all this activism and there's all these like key events but what holds the story together is the is the human element so you as a storyteller you as a reader you as a teacher can pick this book up and say okay at what level do i want to engage with history if i don't want to know anything about canadian history here's here's 10 really cool stories that are just fun interesting and maybe a little out there if you don't know if you are thinking that hmm, maybe there's more perspective than the colonized perspective. It's right there for you to dig into. And if you are quite angry at the way the situation played out, um, there's all kinds of justification for that in there also. Like it's, it's such a rich text. And I just had uh, for the dear listener uh, uh, and the interest of full disclosure, I have a little 22 page section in there where I did not write it. I just was bringing somebody else's words uh, to life. So, um, it's important that for me, I came in as a learner rather than a teacher. Whereas you, Negan, I think had a more of a teaching role as trying to figure out how to take two historical events that people maybe didn't pay much attention to and make them interesting. What was that like for you? Uh, well, I, this the story was interesting for me for two reasons. And first is it was my not the first time I worked with worked with a non-indigenous illustrator, um, but he was a first time illustrator. Really, the first time he'd ever done a story. Andrew Lodwick was his name, and um, he uh, <laughs> he had a very interesting time with me for the most part because I'm a really busy person and so it's hard like I'm doing a lot of things at once and so this was you know doing this story in a small anthology which I didn't think would really um, have the impact that it did but it, it turns out that it has uh, it, it took about you know eight months where it really should have taken three because um, I wrote the script and then I handed it to him and then he started doing pencils and I didn't really get back to him very much and then so he just moved from pencils to inking and then from inking to coloring we didn't quite get to the color stage but at, at that point then I, what I did is I, I sent the story to a friend of mine who is you know firsthand in some of the historical situations that I was describing in my story and turns out we got everything wrong you know, we got the ceremony representations wrong because it's not a part of my culture. Like it's, for, it's from the Haudenosaunee people, which is in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, I'm Anishinaabe from uh, northwestern Ontario and Manitoba. And so, and totally different nations, totally different cultural practices, different languages. Uh, you know, women, for example, do a lot of the ceremonies down amongst Haudenosaunee, whereas uh, up here, those same ceremonies are done by men. Anyway, so... I did all these uh, images with Andrew. It turned out we got a bunch of them wrong. And then we almost had to tell the story completely backwards. So we had to take what was page three and push it to page one. Anyways, a whole lot of very interesting um, redos, which you can, I can see you shaking your head going, oh my gosh, like what a nightmare it is to work with, with me. But it all, it all worked out perfectly. No, that's not it. Um, I had a similar situation where, we i gave in pages and we looked at it and they said these are right i mean this i'm paraphrasing now this wasn't exactly the conversation but it basically boiled down to these are right but they're in the wrong order like you got this part these in the when you finally when i finally figured out how to illustrate um sort of the metaphor and the literal at the same time in a way that 
express Sean and Rachel's story. I didn't get there. I didn't hit the note till maybe the last two pages. And they said, okay, if these, if you can do what you're doing on these first, these last two pages for the first two pages, then we'll have something. It's not that you can't do it, it's that you just didn't know how to do it until you had done it. He doesn't understand that he's the one who has the power to stop it. He simply can't imagine that one little boy could be that important. It's so funny because uh, uh, my, my story, even though it's a story that it was telling really about myself, it turns out that I was telling it in the wrong order. And so... Uh, so what I mean by that is um, I thought that what would happen is I would start the story in Manitoba and go to Oka. Um, and historically, that's kind of the way things had occurred. But in my brain, but turns out that the events that had happened in Oka had happened well, well before. Like the thing, the lead up was really important. So what we did was, is we took everything that was on page three through five and we made that one through three, almost exactly. And the story worked incredibly beautifully as a result. Um, and we, t uh, we took what was originally uh, page one, two, and three, and it was now, that was now four, five, and six. And anyways, and so now the story really worked beautifully. And uh, well, we had to change, I think, probably five or six panels out of those six pages. They, it, it, it so worked perfectly. And it reminded me that stories often tell you how they're going to go. They, you, you, we, we have a say in it as an author or as a writer, as a thinker, but stories have a life of them their own and that's actually a teaching that we have amongst the Anishinaabe our our sacred stories are those called atazukonic and those stories when they're referred to they're referred to beings like agent beings so that stories have a life of them themselves and we only get to carry them like we get to interact with them we get to uh, be a part of them, but ultimately they will move on to someone else. And so they'll move on and they'll live in this life and then live in a different life in a different way. And so the story itself continues, even if our bodies and our spirits don't. It's a pretty spiritual experience. Okay, so, yeah. So I have a couple of follow-up questions just on that concept. Um, I'm a big, I'm mildly obsessed with the notion of semiotics and semiotics is the way in which, um, an object, a word, a phrase, a story um, acquires meaning, right? Over time. Yeah. So in this uh, paradigm of the story as a, or a sacred story, I guess you're separating the two as a, as a thing that you just hold and then pass on. Where is the moment of like, um, where the progenitors, like who's the progenitor of the original story? And does it have a, does it have this, uh, is there a term or a concept there? You know, like if I make up a story and I tell it enough, it starts to acquire meaning. And if people like that meaning, they tend to pass it along. Right. Well, that's just me. Like not as a historical, uh, not as a historical uh, linchpin. Like if I'm not, I'm, I'll separate what I mean. If I tell you the story that I understand of my father, uh, my father's father and how he came to Canada. It's my version of that story based on the facts I know, because most of the people involved in it are now dead. So we only have this sort of one version that I would tell. I'd be the author of that version. But you, right? you aren't really. But I'm not really. So that's my question is like, what in that paradigm, where do those pieces, what do we call those pieces? I'm very fascinated by this idea. Well, the, this is going to hurt uh, basically the entire notion of copyright, and it's going to no, it's going to blow up the whole notion of authorship, and it's going to um, really problematize everything from libraries to book publishing to profit. And it's the concept Perfect. that <laughs> we there is no such thing as ownership of a story, sole ownership of a story. There are no sole creators of anything. Uh, and as Anishinaabe, we know this very well because our oral traditions or our storytelling traditions, which are inherently written, like every, there's no such thing as oral traditions. Oral traditions are always undergirded by the written. And so we have, we just happen to use um, 
skin as text, uh, sand as text, rock as texts. Like we've always been written. We've we've always had writing. We've just uh, you know, we don't use squiggly lines on the page on you know pieces of white paper. We used uh, everything. I have I have one in my on my arm, for example, which is a text about my life and my clan and my my history. We do those all the time. Human beings have always done those things. So, but stories don't exist without relationship and what i mean by relationship is you have to interact with things or think about things or share something with someone else and i'm not even talking about human beings i'm talking about non-human beings i'm talking about the earth i'm talking about the the sky i'm talking about the water and those things are what create experience which is where story resides and so then you go out there and you, you, know, you see something and then you tell a story about it or you, uh, you taste something and you feel something as a result of interacting with uh, food or with a dream or with going for a walk. So you are never the sole author of anything. And what I do with my students is, is I do teach courses on semiotics at the University of Manitoba. And what I do is I bring in a moccasin and I say, how is this indigenous literature? And so they'll say things like, well, the beadwork is an expression of the grandmother or the cookum that made that. And she chose the colors and the format and the style. And I said, yes, absolutely. But is she the sole author of the moccasins? And and we'll say, well, no, because she did them with two other grandmothers. And so that suddenly it's a collective authorship. And I say, well, were the grandmothers the only author of those moccasins? Like who, who made the moccasin before the grandmother got there? Well, that's the deer because the deer offered its existence for the hide to be there before the grandmothers even got to put beadwork on it. And then who made, who was the author of the deer? Well, that's the parents of the deer. That's the earth that helped feed the deer. That's the water that fell on the hide of the deer, which created the shape and the supple and the suppleness and, and the, the shape. And of even the, the even the shape of the moccasin itself is informed. The form follows the function that is required, right? And then the need to walk long distances is also part of the author of that footwear. And and the person who it's being made for, because when a moccasin is made, it's never we, like we don't have factories of moccasins. I mean, traditionally, anyways. I mean, nowadays you have Manitoba Mucklucks, which is a company that creates moccasins at a factory, part of it in Asia and whatever. But um, but the uh, the traditional way moccasins are made are you offer a sema or tobacco, which is a gift to someone to make them for you, and then they specifically. Uh, create it for you, which is not just measuring your foot, but it's also creating your vision of what of what people imagine your colors to be or how your design works for your foot or what is the tradition that that family has created for you or you've interacted with that family. Like, for example, the way a moccasin that my auntie made for me looks very different than one that somebody who doesn't know made for me. And so that means that I had a hand in the creation of that moccasin, even if I didn't sew it. I am the author of that moccasin as well. As much as the deer, because as much the as the grandmother, play. as much as myself, as much as those, who, you know, those who I will be impacting into the future because I will be using that moccasin to create footprints into the future, that every footprint I take will also help author those moccasins because the moccasin shape and changes over time. That means the, the sand, the earth, the water, those who I meet along the way are also the authors of that moccasin too because it's a living, breathing text. Okay, this is a big idea, and uh, 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 that I just—it just occurred to me. So forgive me if it lands in ignorant territory. But is this um, relationship to objects as containing threads of story one of the reasons why um, it, um, written documents didn't have as much prominence because everything was essentially a written document? Is that an inference? Am I making a... Well, I think that, you know, um, Indigenous peoples always had writing, uh, but we thought of writing as something in which it was a living, breathing, it was a living, breathing thing that changed over time. And that means that uh, rock like rock images, for example, up near Saging or in the Norway House or, or, or in North, all throughout Manitoba, we have rock paintings. 
you would consistently add to those texts to also renew them. And they would be as vibrant and as important as those who had originally created them. So it was a living, breathing text that was continually being produced and then reproduced. So the, the idea of a finished text, like, can you imagine if you created a book and the job of the reader is to add to your illustrations and then well, that makes the, what the, that makes the book itself. It's funny you say that I'm working on a project that actually has that as a core concept, but okay. So, well, we actually have those books. I I don't want, I just want to add them. We actually have those books. They're called coloring books. Yeah, right. I guess that's true. You know, coloring books are the concept of, of the author of a collective authorship. Don't you know anything about Fantasia? It's the world of human fantasy. Every part. Every creature of it is a piece of the dreams and hopes of mankind. I'm Icelandic and Icelanders on my mother's side. And Icelanders have a long history with the written word as being um, both the treasure and also a map. Um, And one of these early carvings, it's like from around 10, I don't know, 1040, 1030. It's called the Ramsung carving. Right. And it's the story. It's essentially the Volsung saga um, as a single illustration, a looping illustration with images. This was carved into rock images of Sigurd on the various stages of his sort of quest. And what's interesting about it is it's a it's like, you know, it's from the year 1000, give or take. And it is an it's a comic illustration where there is runic language with some things carefully labeled but for the most part any person looking at it long enough would recognize that it's a story told in images right and you could make up any story you want to match those images and as long as you kept referring to the written text that is the the pictures you would eventually tell the same kind of story, even if you didn't know it. Well, uh, we actually have these. So, um, in our lodge, in our for, our, and we've had these these things for thousands of years. They're called birch bark scrolls, and uh, they're mnemonic devices for us that are images that both represent history, but they also ex- represent creativity and criticism. And they also have dreams with them. So, and they're they're images that we have written on birch bark as people. So when we are in the lodge, for example, we still pull out these birch bark scrolls or images from the birch bark scrolls that then we teach on text for our community. But the key is is that at the end of that teaching, not only is that is it not intended to be, uh, you know, the representation of vocal speech, meaning a direct correlation between breath and and uh, image but you're intended to be able to have flexibility within that image to be able to keep the tradition to tell the specific story but also then don't forget that you have elements that you bring to it to making it make it a living document but at the end when we write those texts down on sand everybody must erase them together everybody takes a piece of that sand with them so that you 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 know sand is of course not something that refuses fixture you know it refuses stasis and it refuses to be frozen in time. Even, you know, the most wettest of sand still is mobile and mo- moving, like clay, for example. And so our texts are intended to be living documents. That's why uh, we would never allow a recording of a song, for example, or we wouldn't allow a, uh, a person to come in and copy down exactly the, the words to a song, um, because that would that would take away the life of the song because the song is also about gesture it's about the singer it's about the um the song being told that day and the wind that's happening on that day as well as you know everything that's happening in that circumstances that requires the song to exist in that moment um and that only that one little part the mnemonic device maybe a thing that'll help us remember that it's a living document is what's supposed to be uh the text itself yeah <laughs> So then if you're present at an event like that, your emotion, I mean, we as human beings, we encode emotion or rather we encode memory in relation to our emotional content. So then if it's done, if what you're saying is true or it is true, but if what you're saying, if I'm understanding it correctly, then if I'm present at that, how I feel about it has added to the story 
in a way that makes me an author when I retell it. Absolutely. You, well, you are, no, you are an author in that moment as you are experiencing the story that's being shared with you. That's why there's no, um, there would be no, there would be no like patent or like, you know, individual copyright amongst uh, Anishinaabe, my people, because it would be something that's collectively owned and collectively created. It doesn't mean that people don't have rights, for example. They don't like because if you say a story, you would always say, I got this story from this family or this person or this clan member or this grandmother or this elder or whatever it might be. Um, I heard the story from there, but this is my contribution to it, which is that it's now my job to tell it. Um, that's why we, uh, for example, when we, in our language, we say miigwech, right? So you hear the word miigwech. Miigwech um, doesn't mean thank you. It means I will give on. So that, that's why um, when you when you get a story, you say miigwech. It's a commitment that you will carry it onward. Wow. That is so in, in contradiction almost to the strict commodification of the written word that we have arrived at in our culture. Well, I mean, it, it, it absolutely bucks the idea and refuses and resists the idea that there is sole profiteers to stories. And like capitalism falls apart. Um, uh, the idea of ownership falls apart. Like owner, I mean, it, it shifts anyways. Ownership shifts because then it's a collective ownership. That means the community owns things. And that means collectively decisions have to be made uh, before, you know, anyone goes and takes it forward or even presents it. You know, the community must be ready for a story before the story is told. Um, and uh, it, it really flies in the face of the entire publishing industry, which is why Indigenous... What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that last phrase? That's a very, there's a whole story in that single phrase. The community has to be ready, you said? Yeah, like for example, um, there, there are certain times of the year when certain stories are told. So for example, we're in uh, uh, what's called the Nibin uh, season, which is the summer season. Now in the summer season, Logistically, we didn't tell certain stories. Uh, we also uh, um, spiritually don't tell certain stories because there's certain stories that are only told during the baboon period, which is the winter period, and the time of Zukapun, which is the time in which the, the world is blanketed by, by snow. And it's in those times when the stories are best protected. And, and it's it, enveloped by that Zukapun um, snow, which protects us in our lodges that we tell those stories at that point. But during the then we don't tell those stories because those stories will then not be protected in the ways that they need to be. Um, so if certain creation stories or spiritual stories or stories about our uh, uh, our creator being uh, called Wena Boju or Nana Bush, uh, we don't tell those stories in Nibin, the summertime. We tell those stories in uh, Bibun, which is the winter. And we do that because this, this, the community's uh, has to be ready for it. And we also, you know, um, there's other ways that I could define that too. Um, stories have to be shared with communities when they're ready to hear them, for example. And that might be stories about cultural change, or there might be stories about political choices, or it might be stories about um, hearing about experiences of violence, for example, and when only when the community is ready. So, okay, there's a couple of things that I want to some threads I want to weave through what you're saying and pull it in through this long thread to what comic storytelling is. So a couple of parallels that I see in all of this stuff that you're saying that I find interesting in retrospect about what a comic book does is that when you set up a story in panels, the authorship actually is given to the reader to figure out what's actually happening between those two images. Yeah, so the guy and whatever you imagine, yeah, whatever you imagine is happening between those two images makes you both the author, but also changes your emotional connection with that story. And for the dear listeners familiar with what I'm talking about, a really sort of trite example is you can show a violent act in comics with a man holding an axe above his head. This is from Scott McCloud's uh, Understanding Comics. A guy can lift an axe above his head, then we can show the next panel and the sound effects flock. And we know something bad happened, but it's up to us to imagine it. Or we can show the actual act 
in the next panel. And all that's left for you to imagine is the force in which the person delivered the blow. Well, one is much more powerful as a storytelling device, but one requires you to be, as you say, ready to understand it, right? So if you're an in, if you're, I think if you're emotionally immature, you're drawn more to the delivery of that violence. You wanna see the ax hit something. But if you are emotionally more mature, you realize that you'd rather not see the ax hit something. You'd rather only fill it up with the amount that you can handle. And so a more clever amount of storytelling is what is left out of the story for the reader to fill in. The gift of story is what you inspire others to do. That's, that's the gift of a story. The, if you tell everybody what you did, I mean, it's the most boring story in the world. Like, like imagine uh, Lord of the Rings, for example. If Lord of the Rings was like this like uh, crazy, where they we got to hear everything about from what everything they ate and every meal to every uh, thought that they had to every, like there would be no creativity and there'd be no fun in the story because you don't get to have your agency as a part of the creator of that story. Like Lord of the Rings is not the same for every person. And we see that particularly with indigenous peoples who uh, read Lord of the Rings and go, wow, this is the most colonial story you could ever possibly tell because the the hero of, of Lord of the Rings for indigenous peoples is not uh, the hobbits. Um, it is the uh, indigenous peoples. It's people like the elves. Um, it's who is you know often classified as kind of the elite noble savages. Um, also the uh, I can't remember what what's the other one. Not the trolls, but the um, uh, the orcs. The no, yeah, like the like like when you when you watch the story and you say to yourself, hey, what's the story of the orcs? The orcs are, you know, they are in, they are literally created from the earth itself, and who, who they seem to be rather uh, in a position in which they're manipulated by a pretty <laughs> colonial force and tricked into uh, a way of thinking that ultimately is against their nature. And at the, at the same point, they are protecting themselves from colonization. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things about Lord, when you read Lord of the Rings that make you inspire to think about fantasy and what are the genres of fantasy that go within storytelling. And oftentimes, they're always based in politics, they're always based in place, and they're always based in the people in which they're told. So that's why the right. Lord of the Rings is not the same experience for everybody. Yeah, and I think an important thing uh, for the listener to take away is that at least as I see it, is is what Nigan is, is not saying that Lord of the Rings was intended to have that meaning when uh, Gerard Tolkien wrote it, that it has that meaning inherent in it because of the time and place it was written, and that when a reader from a different time and place reads that book, they see it as they are and can see different truths in it. Is that a good, am I paraphrasing fair? That's pretty good. That's, what I would say is that there are inherent parts within the Western tradition that are pretty systematic and traditional throughout the, all the, you know, major expressions of, uh, like, for example, Shakespeare's The Tempest, for example, right? What is Shakespeare's The Tempest? It's a story about Prospero that shipwrecks on a new world and encounters two sets of indigenous peoples, the really crazy, vicious ones, uh, the Caliban, who's out of control, and then the the fairy one, which is the noble savage. Well, that is Lord of the Rings. That is exactly Lord of the Rings right there. And and it it is a going to a new far-off land in which you encounter... Uh, scary indigenous peoples and noble indigenous peoples and they're both tragic they're both fading off like at the end of the story the orcs get defeated and the elves fade off into nothingness um that's exactly the story of what north america was imagined to be which is that indigenous peoples were both friendly but also scary and savage but we need both of them to go away please because the land needs to be taken nothing was there anymore not even a dried up lake a hole a hole would be something. No, it was nothing. You also write a column for the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, you are a professor. You write comics. You have a new book, which uh, we won't mention the publisher, but we can talk about it a little bit. But before sure. we get into that, in all of these different ways in which you tell stories, um, and you are paid to tell stories, and you 
uh, incorporate sort of the modern tradition of copyright ownership and all of that. How do you reconcile or how do you think it can be reconciled, these two ways of looking at it? I, I very much agree that nobody is really the author of anything. Like you look behind me, anything I write is influenced by all of these books that are here on the shelves, right? You are, we're always standing on somebody else's shoulders in order to make the stuff that we make. But how do you yourself write Nigan Sinclair at the end of an article and sort of balance all of this stuff? I'm just curious as to your own uh, well, personal I mean, and emotional. If there's plans. anything that uh, indigenous peoples have ever taught me, uh, my uncles, my father, my auntie, my mothers, um, is that we are innovative people and we're also very real people. So we deal with the reality of the moment. And so uh, for me to get my work done, uh, it would be impossible for me to turn to the Winnipeg Free Press and they said, well, what's your byline here? I'd be like, the Anishinaabe people. <laughs> like, like, it would be impossible to say that. And it would also be kind of presumptuous for me to say it because I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of all uh, Anishinaabe or Indigenous peoples. I'm speaking on behalf of my place in this moment, at this time, in this context. And what I often write about is political issues of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm writing about, you know, concepts of culture and with which they oftentimes are uh, marginalized or not considered or misunderstood by mainstream culture. And what I often also write about is how are we all going to get along? Like, that's what I really write. My favorite things is to say, how are we all going to live in this place called Winnipeg or Manitowabo? Well, or and, and interestingly, in, in journalism in particular, I think the byline, the byline in journalism isn't really who's the author, but who's to blame for this opinion? Who can I level my angry letter at? Right. You're not saying who you speak for. You're just saying this. I, this is the person to blame for this opinion in journalism. So it would be unfair to say the Anishinaabe people because they are not to blame for your opinion in this particular case. Yeah. But I, I mean, we we songs are always coming from a voice. And it's not like that's just uh, you know, nobody sings all in one voice. There has to be a presenter at a time period that offers the gift. But the most amazing thing is if you listen to powwow music, powwow music is the most pedagogical thing you could ever listen to. And here's why. If you ever listen to a powwow song, what you'll hear is you'll hear the first voice that'll come in after uh, what's usually a gesture to the four directions. So there'll be a four beats at the beginning, which will lead to the four directions. And then there's a single voice, which is then followed by five, six, seven, sometimes up to 12 or 15 voices that repeat the first voice. And every verse is sung by a different voice who's then re repeated by that voice. What the, that's a pedagogy, what that is. is it, what it does is it says, each one of us have a job to contribute our piece to the feast, our gift to the feast, and everybody partakes in it. Good, bad, great, ugly. And the health of a community is only strong as insofar as people bring their gifts. And, and then each one of us contribute back to that gift. And then someone else offers a gift and then we contribute back to that gift. And then someone else offers a gift, then we contribute back to that gift. That's why there, um, a song is not a collect, it's not an individual thing. It's a collective thing. It's a collective creation. So that's why we also say we have to dance the song. Um, that's also why we have to, uh, um, once we hear the song, it's our job to then remember it and then, you know, maybe hear it again, but then also ask permission to give it forward to hand it off to our children so that that song continues the life of that song continues and here's the most amazing thing um even if we don't hand those things on the songs will continue anyways because the songs have spirits ideas uh intentions and dreams that are passed on even sometimes when the song is not. And that means that, uh, you know, we always obsess about tradition and remembering traditions. But the fact is that Indigenous peoples are telling more stories than we ever have before, even though we've endured the most genocidal acts in history that have attacked our abilities to tell stories, our abilities to understand our own bodies and who we are through the residential school period, and even our understandings of ourselves as human beings, as identities, as people who have Indigenous identities. 
Uh, those have all been assaulted and attacked, and for a million reasons, we shouldn't be here, and I shouldn't be talking to you today as an Anishinaabe person, but yet here I am telling stories, as our people have done for tens of thousands of years, and I might not know all of them, but I still am telling the stories that have been told over thousands and thousands of years, and that's of life in this place. You make it very difficult, again, to... Um, simply segue into some of our other loves that seem so so tried by comparison i wanted to ask you about some uh like some comic book influences uh either current or uh ancient for you um from your uh, misspent youth um but after something so profound i feel like instead what i should do is i'm going to jump over to uh the only thing more profound than what you said would have been a secret, I think. And so I know that you have a secret book that no one knows about yet. It's not really a and secret. That you can't, and you can't name the publisher, well, but we can talk about making it, right? It, well, it, it's not so much I can't talk about the publisher, it's just that the deal hasn't been signed yet. So I've learned in my... Um, social media uh, mistakes over the years to don't announce anything until you uh, till you have a concrete uh, contract or commitment from those who, especially in this time period in the pandemic in which money is tight and and so on. But but I, I can tell you that uh, a major Canadian publisher uh, who is um, based in a major Canadian city that rhymes with Toronto, uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, they approached me just before the um, pandemic began to compile my columns together and be able to create a book. And so I've done that. And uh, they want it specifically about Winnipeg and about the uh, history and stories within Winnipeg and the, um, the challenges that Winnipeg faces, but also the solutions that are found here that are different and unique and specific to Winnipeg, but also are a model that no other, no other Canadian city is even taking an approach or taking or approaching or engaging because we have such a high population of Indigenous peoples and then non-Indigenous peoples that are married to, working beside, uh, you know, living beside, uh, you know, indigenous peoples that we come up with solutions together specifically within Winnipeg. And um, yeah, so I, I finished the draft last night. So I'm pretty excited about it. So. Last night. So it's fresh, fresh. Uh, okay, it, let me ask it still a needs lots of editing, but it's finished. So. so is a collection of columns that you wrote or is it a retelling of the themes of the columns that you wrote? It's... Uh, edited and compiled columns that I've written alongside uh, other pieces that I've written over the years. Um, and it's, uh, how would you classify this? It's not, give me the slug line of this, of this book. Um, it is, uh, the, okay, so the best way to describe it, the way I described it to the publisher is I imagine this to be kind of like what Richard Wagamese did most of his life. Richard Wagamese was this incredible columnist and writer. And what he did is he had, he gave images and pieces of Indigenous life in the modern sense and all the struggles and all the successes that we experience uh, in basic, you know, 1,000 word pieces. And so I have... Um, 60,000 words. So I have about 60 pieces that are slices of experiences, struggles and successes of uh, Indigenous peoples in a city. Actually, what I like, about, yeah, maybe, maybe a province as well. What I like about um, you saying that is it uh, justifies some of my own behavior. I often will write down or illustrate things that to me have no uh, I don't know what's the word, like no commercial perspective. I didn't do it for someone or from, it's just a hundred percent for me. And these things fill up my notebooks and they fill up my uh, sketchbooks and they fill up all this stuff. And at a certain point I've found uh, that if I keep doing it year in and year out, they kind of accrue to a value that I can see with enough perspective later. And then I can go through and pick out a whole bunch of different things and say, okay, that's this book or that's this story. I didn't know I was working on it then, but now I know I'm working on it. Um, 
And what I like about that too, in, in the scope of our conversation, is that it also kind of fits this paradigm that the story was just using me to get out there. It was just kind of coming through me and the pieces that it needed to come through until enough of it was there that I could recognize what it was. Please help me, Mola. Do you recognize this? Well, we haven't seen the Orin in a long time. Every experience that I've ever had with story has been uh, really profoundly spiritual and in that I don't even realize that I was working on it. And uh, my when I was writing my dissertation, and which is now also a different book with the University of Minnesota Press, hopefully that'll come out at some point, um, is uh, I wrote this tiny little piece uh, about me, about the word uh, Anishinaabe. And also I wrote another piece about the word um, Boju, which is the word we use for hello in the language. I wrote this, t it's basically 300 words. And I wrote it like, I don't know, I just wrote it basically sitting in a coffee shop. And I just, it was like a warm up activity kind of thing. Anyways, so I put it aside, I put it in a little file and I didn't really think about it. Anyway, so like I'm coming near the end of my seven year journey to get my PhD. And I'm just like, I can't finish this book. Like I can't, I can't finish this. I can't find an ending. Like what the heck? And then I go, I'm like looking through my computer and then I go, boom, like this little piece I wrote on how to say hello, like six years ago in 300 words in at 8 a.m. in the morning in a coffee shop, I wrote my ending right there. And so what I did is I, is I copied it off the Word document. I pasted it in the end as is and it fit like a puzzle piece, you know, like that puzzle piece that you've been looking for all week and then it just like boom fits in that exact spot i was like that's amazing like i was thinking of my ending six years ago when i hadn't even written a page yet see and i'm i'm a big i'm not a big supporter of the notion of magical thinking but i am a very much uh i very much believe that we as human beings are incredible uh, machines that find patterns and can find patterns that fit and will retain knowledge. I mean, we know this from brain research, you retain knowledge of almost everything that you've ever done in minute detail. It's your recall that becomes limited, right? So your brain stores everything you've ever done, but your ability to recall it is limited, but your recall is connected to your emotional state. Right? We encode memory engrams according to our emotional state. And so from my paradigm, what happened is the part of you that felt exactly the same then fit the part of you that felt exactly the same now. And the pattern of those two words, those two connections of words now fit as a result of being created by the same output, you, the Negan Sinclair in the equation, right had two emotional algorithms that also matched and so those things fit together and that's why i'm always pushing people when they're like oh you know i've been thinking about writing down a story or thinking of starting a story i say just start keep a journal write down stuff who cares what order it comes out just get it all down and then later when you know how you want the story to feel go back and look for the feelings that match through all of your notebooks and you will find that you've written most of it already. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I say to students, like, um, just write, just like, don't worry about publication. Everyone focuses on publication, but, um, just write and all of those will find homes. They all, they will. Every single piece you've, you'll ever write yeah, will find a home. Some will be bigger yeah, than others. Publishing is a byproduct of writing. Yeah, like don't like that's the I think that's one for me like the biggest error uh, with approaching writing is when you're thinking about publication. It's often coming from ego too. It's coming from oh I want to be a star or I want to be known or whatever. Oh yeah. But um, and I was I was there too. I get it. Or and, I want this. But, I want this all to have meant something, all this time and yeah. energy that I put in. Like, I get it. Uh, I mean, and you also want to be paid, right? I get that. But the the 
every writing you ever do will be will find a place uh, or it, it will actually it will it, sorry i take that back it won't find a place it's already telling you where it's going to go that's why you just have to be able to be literate enough to read what the story's telling you of where where it's going to go and sometimes it's going to be um a, a love poem to your partner or a, a story that's told over dinner somewhere but sometimes it's going to be in a national newspaper or a magazine or in a book with a big publisher <clears throat> you don't you don't know because this you're not literate enough to know what the story's telling you all of those things can live anywhere um just sometimes they live better uh, in places and will tell you where those places, the easiest places for those to go. Do you think stories want to be read by large groups of people? Uh, like, Do you think that a story... I think that that assumes that a story has an ego and I think it's we have the ego. And so what I'd say is that stories, uh, they're intentionally relational. So they're intended to go forth and live and living in a sustainable way. Like the best stories that I know of are stories that promote happiness and growth and creativity and inspiration. Um, but, you know, negative stories also have great life too. And they, you know, when you tell gossip about somebody, for example, that travels on and moves on with rumors and innuendo and all that. And so what I mean by it is, is that stories itself have a, have a propensity to want to continue to live. They don't want so part of that might be hearing by being heard by many, but it also might be is handing off uh, to somebody or continuing with something else so that 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 spirit continues. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So I've been um, uh, in this pandemic, I've been homeschooling the kids and I've been doing this um, project that I've done many times as a teacher, but with my own students where I have them design. Uh, we pick a date, usually somewhere between 300 and 500 BCE and we build a city-state from the ground up. We build a culture from the ground up and one of the most important technologies that I talked to my sons uh, who are uh, 9 and uh, 11 about is the technology of a story. So we'll make a list of the things that we think uh, in that culture should be valued and then we reverse engineer it and we build a story that would allow anyone who heard it to understand what was valued in that culture. So we build legends, we make up legends, completely fictitious, that are represented in a moral code that we predetermine to, to look at the concept of story as technology. Um, and why do we do this? Because I'm telling them about all the different forms of government Right. And we're going through all the governments from democracies to oligarchies to theocracies to uh, matriarchies and patriarchies and all of this. Yeah, I was going to say that what, you're really doing this to analyze yourself. Right. Like you're like when you're telling stories about do. about a fantasy world, you're always talking about yourself and your own exactly. situation. Yeah. And what we're doing, what I'm trying to bring out in them is how can they. So this is my secret curriculum. The overarching curriculum that they think they're doing is they're making up a story based on a set of input that would then help governing a particular city-state or population to bring out those values. But what I'm actually doing is I'm getting them to decide on what they believe is of value yeah, exactly. and tell a story that they can remember forever of a legend that they have made up and are the author of that represents this mnemonic device of what they think has value. Yeah. Yeah, it's the development of ethics and and also uh, they're by them thinking of difference, meaning going, I'm going to make up this civilization that's totally different than what I know. You're using what you know to define it. So, so like, like, so like you're saying, oh, I, all these people believe in love. Uh, this society is a society that's built in love. Well, you're already going, okay, well, what are concepts of love that I know, or what is lacking in love in this society that I want to put into this society? So you're inevitably working from exactly this, the world that you know, you're really just talking about the world that you know. Now here, I thought we were just going to talk about our favorite, uh, favorite issues of X-Men. And here we went <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole of, uh, 
existential story fabric. Uh, I haven't really uh, um, read too many modern comics. Uh, you have not been reading recently, but you just showed me your shelf. You have all kinds of stuff on your well, shelf. Well, yeah, I just mean that I haven't read too many recent comics. The only thing I've really read of any regularity was the Walking Dead series, and then uh, I kind of lost interest about um, Omnibus 14 or so, and I just sort of went, ugh. And then I, I felt like I was committed at that point, so I bought 14, 15, and 16 and uh and the, but the only other thing i really revisit is uh really like monumental pieces so i've i'm in rereading stuff from the 80s like death of superman and uh, uh death in the family by so the kid, you know the death of robin um and oh, yeah. uh, all star superman I i've voted. been reading yeah. oh did you vote did you do the call <laughs> yeah dear reader batman death in the family when it came out there was a there was a page with a phone number on the cliffhanger episode and so after Joker beats Robin half to death with a crowbar and then plants a bomb that he has to defuse to save a member of his family, and then it goes off as the cliffhanger, there was a phone number you could call. If you wanted Robin to die, you called for that vote. And if you wanted him to live, you called the other number. I totally vote. I never each, voted. I but... believe each call also cost money. Yeah, it was like 50 cents or something. But oh, yeah, like, I voted too. But like, I know I never voted, but um, man, I was like sitting on the edge of my seat trying to find out if Robin died or not. Because it was not Dick Grayson, it was Jason Todd. And uh, of course, everybody yeah. kind of hated him and anyways. I'm not proud of it, but I, it was the sick part of me, I think, that voted for him to die because I was sure that they would never kill him. That exactly. That's another thing too. That's funny about that story, is because it was just so unheard of to kill a major superhero. Like that. That. That's right up there with killing um, Supergirl kid. in uh, in the Crisis on Infinite Earths when they killed Supergirl. Like that was just like, or the Flash. It was like what, and uh, and it was just like you know. To, uh, to be honest, I actually reread Crisis on Infinite Earths the other day. Like I'm just all of those kind of major monumental stories I've read recently. That's about it. So. This has been Super Pulp Science, where we have talked about not only how genre gets made, but how the very fabric of story itself comes into being. Uh, this is Gregory Kamichuk encouraging you to join the fight and make comics.